Isaiah chapter 11 as we continue on. This great prophet, this great book, focused on our great Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's why the Word is great. Not because a prophet happens to be well-versed or, or, or poetic or, or able to capture our attention with, with great descriptions and, and use of language, which Isaiah does all that. And not because a prophet is, is faithful and consistent and doggedly determined to preach the Word of God. Isaiah is all that. But we are excited to be in Isaiah because it is about Jesus Christ. And because He is the focus of all Scripture. In the scroll of the book, it is written of Me, He said. So we look again at Jesus. Uh, Father, we lift up the name of Jesus. In our worship, in our prayers, in our study, in our lives, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. And we recognize this. Lord, may, may we not be silent. May we... For the sake of the lost, for the sake of your great plan, Father, not remain silent, but ever speak the name of Jesus and the truth. Father, fill us up again tonight with these things, and may your Spirit be our true teacher here. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, we read Sunday, let's start there again. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The shoot from Jesse, branching out, bearing fruit. Isaiah's inspired and remarkable prophetic picture of Jesus Christ, of the coming Messiah. From Isaiah's perspective, the Messiah who would come. From our perspective, the Messiah who did come and who is coming a second time to take his people home. He's the one who came and who Isaiah says in these two verses would bear the very Spirit of the Lord. That is, the Spirit of the Lord would be Messiah's Spirit. Therefore, Messiah is the Lord. The Lord. He bears the Spirit of the Lord, and He bears all His attributes. Like we talked about Sunday, like the lampstand in the temple, those six attributes that branch out, but the core of the lampstand is the Spirit of the Lord Himself. And we're going to probably go back and look at that again on Sunday because there's some stuff that, that I saw this week after we were done Sunday in verses 1 and 2 that we need to talk about. And I almost stuck it in here tonight, but there's too much else that we need to talk about, so we'll probably come back to it at that time. But here's the thing I want you to hear as we just consider these two verses and begin to roll on into the rest of the chapter. There's something remarkable about this description of the Spirit of the Lord and His attributes. These six other qualities given along with the quality of of just being the Spirit of the Lord. The remarkable thing is this very same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Messiah, Spirit of Emmanuel, Spirit of the Lord, this same Spirit, He says, He wants to put in you and in me. He says, if if you'll come to me, if you put your faith in me, repent and be baptized every one of you, Peter said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling Spirit of God with you. Now, He doesn't replace your spirit, but He comes alongside your spirit. Jesus says, the Father and I, we will make our home in you. 
We will be present with you. And if that's not enough for you, remarkable, amazing as it is, he also says he wants to pour out these same supernatural qualities into and on your life and mine. I mean, wow! Does that not amaze you? That God wants to give you His characteristics, His qualities? Let me be clear, not that any of us will ever attain to being little gods. We're not. (laughs) We won't be. There's only one God and you're not Him. But that He would share with us these characteristics, these attributes, these qualities of, of His own nature. For anyone who believes in Jesus. Remarkable. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, that is a helper of of equal quality to Jesus Himself, that He may be with you forever. Now, we read about that on Sunday and we we kind of breezed by these, these qualities. I want to take a second look at them tonight. But... The question was asked Sunday night, and I, it was interesting as, as I was teaching on this and talking about the Holy Spirit. And anytime you talk about the Holy Spirit, people, you know, you see them straighten up a bit. What's he going to say? What does he believe? How far is he going to take this? You know. And during the five o'clock hour, especially, I was just watching people, and I don't know if it's that we ran out of coffee in the back, or but there was, you know, there was some just a bit of consternation on some faces. And so afterward, I, I said, let's let's have some questions. Any of you who are confused about a few things. And so there were some great questions asked. One of them that I thought was particularly interesting was asked, what makes these attributes supernatural? Look at the list in verse 2. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. What makes these supernatural? Aren't these qualities in the common, in the natural world? I mean, it's not like the list says, you know, the spirit of super speed. Or the spirit of x-ray vision. Or the spirit of being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Now that would be supernatural. We don't even see the spirit of healing, the spirit of speaking in tongues, the spirit of, of, of languages, the spirit, you know, we don't see that here. Now we do in the New Testament. That's another conversation when we get to Corinthians. We'll cover that. Sometime in 2032, I think. I think we're on track for that, roughly. But these qualities, yeah, you look at them and you might ask, where's the supernatural in this list? And here's the thing. It begins with the supernatural. The list is supernatural because of how it begins. In other words, the attributes are supernatural because the Spirit is supernatural. And there's a vast, there's a world of difference between the wisdom that is of the world and the wisdom that is from the Spirit of the Lord. The understanding, oh, you can gain some understanding in the world, but wouldn't you rather have the understanding of the Creator of the world? Oh, sure, you can gain some counsel. You know, I think it's up to about $175 an hour. You can pay for counsel. Wouldn't you rather just have the counsel of the Lord? Or, or, or strength. Work out all you want. You're still going to die, man. Or the strength of the Lord. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These things are supernatural attributes because the Holy Spirit is supernatural. Beyond natural. Greater than the natural world. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, followers of Jesus, you don't have to walk naturally in this world. You can walk supernaturally with these attributes of God poured out in your life by His Spirit residing in your life. And we don't have to be earthbound people anymore. 
It's not just the rapture that lifts us up to be with Jesus. It's His Spirit now. And we can walk that way and live that way and not be grounded all the time. Living life the best we can, just trying to get by. (laughs) We have the Spirit of the Lord. Paul puts it this way. We've read this passage several times. Keep being drawn back to it. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually understood. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is supernatural. That's remarkable. Praise the Lord. We don't walk with human understanding any longer. The attributes are supernatural because the Spirit is supernatural. And Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. A lot of Christians say, say, I live by the Spirit, claim to be filled by the Holy Spirit, but are not walking that way. Paul says, don't fool yourself. If you have the Spirit of God residing in you, why not walk by the attributes of the Father, the attributes of Jesus, the attributes of His Spirit as well? And that's what we're invited to do. To be supernatural in our very lifestyle. Awesome. Consider these these attributes for a moment. Wisdom. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of the Lord, His actual Spirit. And the first attribute following is the Spirit of Wisdom. The Hebrew is chokmah. And chokmah means literally the capacity for understanding. Okay, The wisdom talked about here, this, this word describes more of who God is. In fact, in the same way that God is righteous, just, He's just righteous, He is. In the same way God is holy, in the same way God is love, God is wisdom. He is wisdom. The Bible says God is love. The Bible also indicates God is wisdom. It's His very nature. In the Proverbs, Saul goes so far as to, or Solomon goes so far as to personify wisdom as being with God before creation even began. Proverbs 8.22, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. And wisdom should be personified because wisdom is the Word of God. What John calls in his Gospel the Logos, which we'll talk about when we get to John, somewhere around 2023, I'm thinking. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that is wisdom. And wisdom became an incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and was known by us and this world by another name, Jesus Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that's the first characteristic. How would you like that in your life? The wisdom of the Spirit of God. Chokmah. But notice it's coupled up. In fact, these are there are three couplings here. They're not just given by themselves. It's not just six different things here. They're coupled. 
You've got the spirit of wisdom and understanding put together. Wisdom and understanding. Understanding is is bina, and bina is wisdom applied. So God who is wisdom also has bina. In other words, He also applies that wisdom. It's wisdom put to use. It's the very application of the nature of God. People sometimes ask the question, why did God create the world? Maybe a better question is, how could He not? It's in His nature. It is His nature to create. And the wisdom that God has innately provides that impetus there for the binah, the understanding, to be applied. Understanding. Understanding is is knowing how to create, and it comes from wisdom, which is the capacity to do so. And the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.17, By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Who is Paul talking about there? Jesus Christ. Remarkable. Wisdom and understanding. He couples the next two, the spirit of counsel and strength. These two are now paired together, counsel and strength. Why? Well, remember, he is the wonderful counselor. But he's also the mighty God. Counsel and strength. Counsel and strength, Isaiah 9.6 tells us. Counsel is the Hebrew word etzah, and it means agreed upon purpose or intention. And I think that's interesting because we have the unified purpose, the divine intention of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed upon the intent of God is that counsel, the counsel of God. But it's not just the counsel of God. I'll tell you, oftentimes in human circles, we might have great counsel, but the strength part is what's lacking. Talk about doing amazing things, but it's the getting it done part that's the problem. Well, God has both the counsel and the strength. Strength is gabura in the Hebrew, and it means power, might, or mastery. Now, if you put these two things together, what you've got is counsel and the power to follow through with the divine intentions. God says, this is what I'm going to do, and God has the strength to do it. And when the Lord puts something on your heart, when He counsels you, when He gives you divine intent in your life to accomplish some task, guess what? He will give you the power to follow through. You don't even have to worry about that. The Lord calls you to some remarkable task. We had a great meeting, our last shepherds meeting we met with um, with David, um, David Grove. Some of you know David. He, he came here in high school. Uh, Danny Gilmore uh, Pray with him, led him to the Lord, and, and David started coming to the bridge and was here for, for quite a while, and then he took off to Africa on a one-way ticket, just went, and bounced around there for how many, 14 months, I think, and is just back now, and he's involved with Harvest Vision Ministries, and he's involved in mission work, and I don't know, I, I, was, I was blown away. He's 26, 24 years old, okay, younger than I even thought. 24 years old, and this young 24-year-old is basically schooling all of us older guys on the passion and the follow-through. God gave him a vision, God gave him a calling, gave him divine intention, and gave him the strength to go. And he doesn't even know what's going to happen next, but he's listening and following and seeking out the intention of the Father. When the Father puts something on your heart, He's going to give you the strength to follow through. 
Well, why do I feel weak sometimes? Because we're not listening. We have the divine intent, but we've shut off our ears from the spiritual strength that He offers us, that He provides us. I have lots of good intentions. (laughs) I always intend to vacuum every week. I tell Cheryl, I really intend to. Absolutely intend to, but then the day comes and I'm just too tired. Great intentions, but it's the follow-through. Like Peter, you know, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, with the Spirit of God, you have the willingness and you have the power to follow through. And the Lord Himself shows us that in His nature. His nature is faithfulness and He remains faithful. Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. The counsel and the strength. They go together beautifully. Spiritually applied, far more effective than the counsel and strength of the natural world. The next two paired together are knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge speaks of discerning truth. It's able to understand the truth about things. It's da'at in the Hebrew. Fear is yirah. And fear is that deep abiding reverence at the wonderful and awful presence of God. The awful presence? Yes. Awesome. Amazing. Terrifying. When Jesus shows up, we're told at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why will every tongue confess? Well, those who have faith will confess because we've already confessed. We already believe in Jesus. Those without faith will confess out of sheer terror. There's no other option but to confess Jesus as Lord when you see Him as Lord. And you put these two together, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, they have to go together. Because, listen, and this is important in Bible study, knowledge without the fear of the Lord is trivial pursuit. That's all it is. If you take the fear of the Lord factor out of it and just apply knowledge, you get theologians with no faith. You know, these great professors... You know, these guys who sit there like the Jesus Seminar I've mentioned before out at Texas uh, Christian University, who sit around and basically think themselves out of faith. And they think themselves away from Scripture and away from the Word of God. And it's knowledge without the fear of the Lord. And it puffs up. True spiritual knowledge and fear combined is about humble discernment. It's about walking in the truth and recognizing who the truth is And where the truth comes from, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So that's the list there. And I ask you again, do you want that kind of supernatural spiritual leading in your life? And if so, ask Him. Ask Him. Lord, would You pour out these attributes on me? I think Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 is a great verse to pray. I'm praying, Lord, for the Spirit of the Lord. I'm asking You for the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Lord, may I have this in measured out by Your Spirit. Amen. Let that be our prayer so that we can walk effectively in this life for the sake of His kingdom. Now, there may be a question you'd ask here at this point. If this is about Jesus, and it is, and that the Spirit of the Lord and all these attributes would fill Jesus Christ, then why is this last one in the list the fear of the Lord? Did Jesus walk in the fear of the Lord? I would submit to you that yes, He did. 
as He walked in human flesh, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, walked in the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 3. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is both evidenced in Messiah and evoked by Messiah among His people. That is, Jesus had that deep respect and awe and love and deference for His Father. And He also evoked that in people. Those around Him. He led into that place. The place of His delight. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was evident in Jesus. And it was evoked by Jesus. Evident in Him, again, in the way He respected His Father. John 5.19, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. Manner That's the fear of the Lord. The awe and reverence and respect that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, but still said, but Father, I will do whatever You tell Me to do. I will listen only to You. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8.49, I honor My Father. He also said, and you dishonor Me, which is, by the way, the same thing as dishonoring the Father. Jesus said in John 17.4, I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, it's one of those divine tensions, I guess you could call it, of the Trinity. Those things it's difficult for us to understand. God in the flesh praying to God the Father in heaven through the Spirit of God. And we go, huh, but that's... That's the way it works. Jesus had the the evident fear of the Lord in Him, but the fear of the Lord was also evoked by Him in the hearts of His followers. What do you mean? Look at verse 3 again. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. The word delight there is an interesting Hebrew word. I think they're all interesting, but this is a good one. The word is riach. And riach in the Hebrew means literally to inhale or to breathe in, as in breathing in a sweet aroma. You would riach at the perfume counter. Or you would riach in October at apple picking time. You know, when you're out among the fields and you smell those sweet apples. You know, you you would riach, uh, gentlemen, when your wives have just put on some sweet-smelling perfume. You would not reoc when she just got home from the gym. That's, that's not a good time you know, to, to reoc. But Jesus breathes in the sweet aroma of awestruck, worshipful, God-honoring reverence in our hearts. And why does He love it so much? Because it's His aroma. The aroma that is evoked by the fear of the Lord. He delights in it. Tonight, as you worship, Jesus was breathing in the fear of the Lord evident in this place. When you kneel down before Him and and humbly present your love, your prayer to Him, He reacts. He he breathes in that sweet-smelling aroma. Isn't it interesting that the, the altar of incense, that the incense went up along with prayers as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father. That same word, sweet-smelling, that's the word that's used here, reach. He delights in this. He, he breathes it in. He enjoys it. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and He will not judge by what His eyes see nor make a decision by what His ears hear. But with righteousness, He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And, 
He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. Now he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here. Remember the word for breath in both the Hebrew and the Greek is also the same word for spirit. In the Hebrew, ruach. In the Greek, pneuma. And the ruach and the pneuma, the breath or the spirit. And read that way, it means with the spirit of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now we've started to go into a new part of this prophecy. Isaiah, speaking of you know this, this uh, shoot that shoots right out of the stem of Jesse, out of the stump of Jesse. And he describes that he has the Spirit of the Lord, he has all these characteristics, and now he's beginning to talk about not so much his first coming, but his second coming as he comes to rule and to reign and to be glorified in that day. And we're told at the end of verse 4 there, with the breath of his lips, the spirit of his lips, he will slay the wicked. That's exactly what Paul said. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, that lawless one, speaking of Antichrist, the one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath or spirit of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Paul, I believe, is tapping in right here to Isaiah. It's the only two times in Scripture where this phrase is used, that he will slay him with the breath of his lips or the breath of his mouth. Isaiah uses it, Paul uses it, and we're, we're taken right to the time when this becomes applied. When what becomes applied? Verses 3 and 4. This is the time where Antichrist is put down and Jesus Christ begins to rule and reign in His glorious kingdom. Now David spoke prophetically about the coming king in his last words. And it's very similar to this. To verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. David said in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. David said that when he was about to go the way of all the earth, but he spoke of the Anointed One the rock of Israel. He talked about Jesus Christ as He ushers in His coming kingdom. David said this king would rule two ways, righteously and in the fear of God. That same fear we just talked about, that that He delights in, that He breathes in, that's how He's going to rule. Now sometimes this whole fear of God concept is, is lost, especially on the world. Why do you Christians talk about fearing God? Don't you want to love your God? Well, I do love my God. Well, don't you want to be able to relate to your God? I, I do relate to my God. Well, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you rather have a, a God who's your friend? In Jesus, I have a friend with my God. But I also fear my God. And here's what the world doesn't get. The fear of the Lord is a safe place. It's not a place of terror. It's not a, you know a haunted house of horror. It's a secure place as opposed to an uncertain place. I'll tell you what I wouldn't want to be, and I've shared this before. I would not want to be a Muslim. What a terrifying religion. You never know what Allah is going to do next. You have no idea if you're even going to be saved because Allah has the right at the last second to change His mind and send you to hell if He wants to, if He just on a whim. Boy, that, that's not certainty. But the fear of the Lord is a safe, secure, solid place. 
And the rule of Jesus when He comes to reign on earth, when He sets up that kingdom, it will be, it will be a perfect rule that will have its perfect effect on the entire earth. A rule in the fear of God. A rule with righteousness and with fairness. In verse 5, he says, Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. About his loins, it's, it's that biblical picture of girding up the loins, which means basically hiking up the road, the robe and getting ready to run. For a man to gird up his loins, the, the robe would lay low, and then he'd just pull up a bit. He'd fasten the belt around him so he could get up, maybe just above his knees, so that he could take off running, or he could go into battle. And he says that Jesus will he will uh, have righteousness be the belt about his loins. Righteousness that allows him to act, to move forward. Paul uses the same concept in Ephesians 6.14 when he says, Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's just preparedness. It's ready to do battle. And when Jesus comes, it's readiness to rule from His perfect and righteous throne. So He comes ready in righteousness. He comes belted with faithfulness. But look what happens now on the earth when Jesus comes into His kingdom. Check this out. Verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Dave, how many lambs do you keep in the pens with your wolves? Not a good idea? Okay. I didn't think so. In the kingdom... Not only will Dave not need to cage his wolves, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to talk to Dave afterwards. Not only will he not have to cage his wolves, but lambs and wolves will be buddies. They'll hang out together. They'll wander the fields together. Why? Because the wolves will no longer be hungry for lamb. They're going to eat the grass and the fruits and the vegetables, and they're going to be suddenly herbivores. The wolves. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. What a picture will that be? The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And let's not over-spiritualize that. That's just saying a little boy will be out playing with these huge beasts. No problem. Why? Because they're harmless in the kingdom. Fascinating. And the cow and the bear will graze. See, that just cracks me up right there. (laughs) The cow and the bear together. You're driving down 20, heading toward Oak Harbor. You go down the hill into the kind of valley there. You look over the side, and there are all the cows and the bears. (laughs) Lounging around, hanging out together, you know. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. You know, moms in the millennial kingdom will not be concerned if there happens to be a snake pit in the backyard. Mom, I'm going to go play with the snakes. Okay, dear, have fun. Take a lunch. You know, it's just going to be playing with the snakes. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Why would he do that? Because the viper's not going to bite. The poison's gone. Verses 6-8, through gang, are not, as some have supposed, an allegorical picture. There is nothing in Isaiah's words to suggest that this is a metaphor of peace. We're talking about a reality. Something that happens on earth when Jesus comes in His kingdom. Carnivores are now herbivores. Children playing freely with them all. I, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube video. It's pretty scary. Of the little girl and the lion. 
Some of you have seen that. It's a little girl at the zoo, glasses, a little, I don't know, five, six-year-old girl, standing in front of this lion cage, big, thick glass, and there's a huge lion. on the. I mean, his head's like that big and hers like this. And he's got the big mane, and he's just, and he's up against the wind, and he's just, boy, he would love to just bite her little head right off. That's, that's where you can see it in his eyes. And he's just like this. And she's, she's petting the window, and she's kissing the window, the big, cute, the big, cute cat. And then all of a sudden, the lion rears back and goes, like this. He just starts batting at the thing. You know, and I told Cheryl, I'm sure what he was doing was just trying to clean the window off so he could see her better. That was all. It's, it's a scary video. She doesn't even jump. No, she doesn't jump at all. She just goes, <laughs> see, that's what kids in the millennial kingdom will be like. The lions won't be attacking. It's remarkable. Gang, why is this the case in the millennial kingdom? Because the curse is lifted. The world in its present state, both spiritually and naturally, is under curse. The curse that happened back in the garden that affects and afflicts mankind and even animal kind to date. Now, if you think I'm going a little too far out there, listen. Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul says, The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Everything will be different in that glorious kingdom. Everything will be peace. It's not just going to be peace between men and women and nations. It's it's peace on earth. Even such that you can walk through a forest unharmed because the animals, they no longer are under the curse. Any more than you are, any more than I am. And Habakkuk the prophet in chapter 2 verse 14, he said, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine planet earth, if you can, restored to Eden-like Status, perfect condition, without any wetlands mitigation at all. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't let that one go. How is this amazing dream even possible? Look at verse 9. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what Habakkuk said as well. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. But notice what he says. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What is his holy mountain? Jerusalem, Zion. Listen, that's what I thought. It's not. It's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Normally, the holy mountain speaks of Zion, speaks of Jerusalem. But in this case, it's bigger We're talking about the kingdom of God, which is a mountain that spans the entire earth. Where do you get that? 200 years after Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream of a glorious statue. And in that dream of the statue, representing the nations of man from head to toe, Suddenly he dreams this, he's he's exalting in it, and out of nowhere comes this stone cut out without human hands, and it strikes the statue and obliterates the whole thing like chaff in the wind. The nation's blown away before this stone. 
And Daniel writes in Daniel 2.35, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That is the mountain being talked about by Isaiah. It's not limited to a geographical location on the earth. It is the entire kingdom spanning the entire earth. And a little more proof of this, Daniel 2.44, the prophet says, "In In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure. The stone is the future kingdom. The mountain is the kingdom of the Lord. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's why the entire earth is going to be perfect because the entire earth is under the kingdom, authority, and control of Jesus Christ. From sea to shining sea and beyond. Verse 10. In that day... By the way, in that day is a favorite phrase of Isaiah's. He uses that constantly throughout his prophecy. You will hear it again and again. In that day, in that day. And when he says that, typically, he is speaking of the kingdom. He's speaking of the glorious return of Jesus. In that day, the nations will resort or seek out the root of Jesse. Remember we talked about that Sunday. The Goyim will seek the root of Jesse. The Gentiles will go looking for Jesus, who will stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples, and His resting place will be glorious. The Gentile nations seeking out Jesus, the shoot of Jesse, the one who came before and after. The shoot is the root. right? The root comes before Jesse, the shoot comes after the Jesse. Jesus is both. And so the Gentiles will resort to Jesus. What about the people of David? The people of Israel and Jordan. Watch this, verse 11. Then it will happen on that day, or in that day, that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Oam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. Now a little correction here. Some have used this verse and said, that's the return from Babylon. When Judah went into Babylonian captivity, which was, you know, after this fact, a couple hundred years later, go into captivity, come back out of captivity, and that's what's being talked about, that Isaiah didn't prophesy the end times like you wacko end times preacher people believe. No, this is, this is already fulfilled in the return from Babylon. Gang, that perspective, with all due respect, is short-sighted if not completely blind. Because this verse alone denies that. The truth is bigger than that. Note this, it speaks of a second recovery. The Lord will again recover the second time with His hand. The first time was the recovery, was the return from Babylon. Which was just a a scant picture of the return from all nations out of the diaspora of the entire world. He will... will, uh, Again, recover for a second time. The exile's return was the first. This speaks also globally. This is far bigger, far more epic than the mere 50,000 exiles. And you can count them up. It's actually just under 50,000 who returned with Zerubbabel and Joshua in the first wave from Babylon. And then a few more returned with Ezra. And later, a few more came with Nehemiah. But they were not large amounts. When you think of millions 
who were taken out of Judah only to return 50,000 or so. This was not a big return. The majority stayed in Babylon. Seems like the majority often do, doesn't it? The majority stay in Babylon. The majority are more comfortable in Babylon. What about in the church today? The majority who would just... Yeah, I I go to church. I'm part of the people. But my home is in Babylon. I'm comfortable there. I have a good income there. That's where my lifestyle is. That's where I'm going to live. I am part of the people, but I'm not going to where the king is. The majority stay. Now some have said, yeah, but, but he calls them a remnant. Okay, a remnant. Uh, a remnant of people that would return. But you need to understand when he calls them a remnant, it's not mathematics in terms of size, it's geography. Notice where the remnant return from. Verse 11 says, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the islands of the sea. That includes lands to the south in Africa. It includes lands to the east. It includes lands to the north. And it includes the islands of the sea, which biblically refers to the far west. This remnant is not just coming from Babylon to the east. The remnant is returning east, west, north, south, from every direction. This remnant is coming back. And if that's not enough for you, look at verse 12. And he will lift up a standard for the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from where? The four corners of the earth. This is talking about a second return that involves bringing back a remnant of Jewish people from all over the world, not just from the east, not just from Babylon. And by the way, God normally doesn't separate out Israel and Judah. The people of Israel did when they developed their northern kingdom and the people of Judah did when they got sick of the people in the north. And they, You're the Israelites. We're the, we're the true you know, people of God, of the line of Judah. You know, and they'd say, well, we're real Israel. You're just, and they fought and they bickered and they, there was civil war constantly between the kings of the two different countries, two different nations. And the Lord didn't refer to them that way. Most biblical prophecy, God refers to it when He says Israel, He means Israel and Judah. When he says Judah, he means all of Israel. But here, here he specifically says, I will assemble the banished ones of Israel, that is the northern kingdom, and will gather the dispersed of Judah, that is the southern kingdom. What does that mean? It means all God's people. All the Jews will be coming back from all the corners of the earth. And gang, this is the return that we have begun to see happen that's been happening since 1948. Rick, why do you always say we're in the last days? That is one of the number one, that's probably top five reasons right there why I believe we're in the last days. Because we are seeing the fulfillment of biblical prophecy before our very eyes. As the Lord is beginning to draw back the dispersed from all over the world. From the four corners of the earth. Furthermore, in that day He will lift up a standard for the nations. So not only will the Jews worldwide from the diaspora come back to the land of Israel, but the global Gentiles will in that day resort to the root of Jesse. So it's speaking about that glorious kingdom age when all of Israel is called back and when the world comes up to Jerusalem to worship Jesus there. Verse 13 says, Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart 
And those who harass Judah will be cut off. So Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south. And Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. All the civil warring that went on in the days of the kings, over. This will not ever happen again. Verse 14, They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And verse 14 just described the region of Gaza where the Palestinians are. It describes Saudi Arabia, and it describes Jordan of today. That Israel will not be just be a threat to the surrounding nations because they perhaps maybe have an, a nuclear bomb or because they've got a crack military force. But they will possess these lands. What we're seeing in that verse is the possession of what God promised in the first place. As he begins to, Israel begins to spread out and not hold just 30,000 square miles, but 300,000 square miles that was the original promised land that God offered Abraham. And you can look it up back in Genesis 15, I think. 15 to 17. Read all the way because it's all good stuff. He goes on in verse 15 and says, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And He will wave His hand over the river with His scorching wind and He will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over it dry shod. I like dry shod. It means in sandals. So get out your keens. Get out your Birkenstocks. Please don't wear socks. (laughs) But people will just be able to walk back to the land. What is this describing here? It means that both ancient enemies of Israel, such as Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, all these, these guys will not be a problem anymore. Ancient enemies and arduous topography will no longer be an issue for returning or going up to the land. God's going to smooth things out and make it easy for people to access the land. Probably is going to happen when the Lord steps on the Mount of Olives and splits it from north to south. And earthquakes are happening there at the tail end of the tribulation and everything changes and Jerusalem is lifted up, but everything else becomes a plain, the Bible tells us. And we're told here, the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, probably the Red Sea, it's going to dry it up. It's going to make it possible to walk straight across that. And he will wave his hand over the river. The river there is most likely the Euphrates. The Bible talks about the river. That's the big one. And so it's probably the Euphrates there that he says he will dry up. And I think this may reference what happens at the tail end of the tribulation just before the battle of Armageddon. Because Revelation 16.12 says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way will be prepared for the kings from the east. So as they come in, and their attack against Antichrist and his foes, oh, there's so much there. They're going to come in, and everybody basically is going to be against Antichrist. Do you realize that at the very end? He's going to try and set himself up to be God. He's going to try and conquer the world militarily, and the world finally is going to clue in and get it, and they're going to be coming from all directions and meeting there in the Valley of Megiddo to fight it out and duke it out with Antichrist. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and all of mankind, rebellious, sinful mankind, goes... Shoot at him! <laughs> and they're wiped out. And so that river Euphrates 
It's going to be his hand waved over it with a scorching wind. He's going to strike it in the streams, and men will walk over it wearing really whatever sandal you choose. It doesn't have to be Keens or Birkenstocks. You could go with you know just some flip flops. That'd be fine, I'm sure as well. <laughs> what follows all of this, gang? There will be a highway from Assyria. The remnant of his people who will be left, just as there for the remnant who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up from the land of Egypt. And after this glorious picture of a victory and a new world and a righteous king and all of this, there is a natural response in chapter 12, and you could call chapter 12 the song of the redeemed. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the Israelite plain, because this is not the song of the redeemed among the Gentiles. This is the song of the redeemed of Israel. This one song in chapter 12, six verses, and it's two stanzas, two strophes that are of the same song. Part one is a song of salvation. Verse one, you will say on that day, I give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. How many of you parents have ever done that? You've been angry with the child. You have disciplined the child, perhaps spanked the child, and then you scoop the same child up in your arms and hold them and hug them while they cry at the punishment that you inflicted on them. You then give them comfort. Now, the world in its understanding would say, that'll mess up a kid. But godly understanding says, no, that will discipline a kid and show them love at the same time. And that's what is sung here. I give thanks to you. You were angry with me, but your anger's turned away. You comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. El Ani Yeshua. God my salvation. Jesus' name right there in the song of salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. And He has become my salvation. I love that. My salvation is not just this this thing that happens to me. My salvation is the Lord. My salvation is Jesus Himself. I will look and see my salvation as He calls me. I will come into the presence of my salvation who is a person, not just a happening. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Water from the springs. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And the book of Revelation toward the very end says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The song of salvation. Now, we have a song of salvation, don't we? We have a song of the redeemed. In fact, it's written about in Revelation chapter 5. The song of the redeemed. It's our song. That's the one we get to sing. The one based on Jesus and the cross and what He did and how we came to Him in faith in this dispensation, in this age, and how He saved us. And we sing that song. The song to sing for throats that were once dry. Thirsting for more than simply this life. And, and, and now, we praise the Lord for quenching our thirst immediately and eternally. But this is not our song. And some have mistakenly taken Isaiah chapter 12 and, and said this is the song of the church. And it's not. It's the song of Israel. Of God's people once punished and now comforted and brought into their glorious fulfillment of promise. 
But I want you to think just for a moment before we go to the second part of this song. What does our salvation do to us? What does our salvation do to us in this world and at this time? I don't know about you, but when I stop and start to really think about my salvation, I get compelled to tell people about it. My salvation becomes my great motivation. My salvation is my call to evangelization, which is the second half of the song. The song of salvation and now a call to evangelization. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name. See, now this is Israel telling other people, call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song. For He has done excellent things. And let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This stanza, as Victor Buxfazen writes, is imbued with a deep missionary spirit. Because you see, the truth is, when you begin to understand the grace poured out in your life, you cannot help but tell others about that same grace. The greatest motivation to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ is to recognize it in your own life. When you get it, you have to share it. And if you can't share it, I question whether or not you've really gotten it just yet. Not, not, I'm not questioning anyone's salvation. I'm questioning your understanding of it. And how far along the road we have come in getting the grace that's been poured out onto us. When we understand that, we have to tell people about it. It just flows out of us and people can't shut us up. So this wonderful song ends on a high note of triumph, concluding the section of Isaiah known as the book of Emmanuel. And I love that. It, it concludes with great in your midst is Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, in your midst, God with us. And that's who Emmanuel is. Now, we enter the book of Burdens. Chapter 13 through 23. I promise we're not going to do all of that tonight. But I do want to do chapter 13. So if you'll stick with me a moment longer. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. The oracle. This word is used a lot among the Hebrew prophets. It is the word Masah, and it means the burden. This is the burden of Isaiah for Babylon. Masai, it means to lift up, but it's like hoisting. It's it's a heavy burden. Trying to lift up a great weight. And Isaiah, in these ten chapters, 13 through 23, he's going to give divine judgments. These are burdens on his heart. Okay, This is a heavy requirement the Lord puts on Isaiah. He has to tell them of their divine judgment. He has to lay out the wrath that's going to come on nine surrounding nations around Israel and also a judgment for Jerusalem is thrown in here as well. Chapter 13 through 23. That's that's impressive that it's the burden concerning Babylon which Isaiah saw. And I think it speaks to perhaps how we need to view the world. We need to have a burden for the lost. We need to have a burden for those who are living in rebellion to the Lord. Um, Not an anger 
Not a judgmentality of looking down our noses and saying, those people in Olympia who are trying to destroy marriage, they should just burn. You know, we should have a burden for our government, for people who are living with blinders on. A compa- That's what Jesus had. When He saw the people, He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do we not live in a world that is like sheep without a shepherd? And I pray because I have the tendency, I can go the other way. You probably have recognized that in me. But I can, like many of us, just get angry at sinners. You know, at those who rebel against the Lord. What right? How dare they? You know, and, and Jesus all the while is in each of us saying, I want you to feel for them what I do. I don't want you to look at the homosexual and just go, ugh. I want you to look and say, God loves you. I'm not pointing to anyone over here. <laughs> I don't want you to look at the, the guy who is lost in pornography and say, disgusting. I want you to have a burden for him. I don't want you to look at family members who just get angry every time you mention Jesus and just be fed up. I want you to have a burden for them. Like Isaiah had a burden, for, of all places, for Babylon. A burden for Babylon. May we have heavy hearts like that. These nations are being judged, and we will see this as we go through, being judged both in the past, there was immediate judgment, but also in what I would call the near future. For this judgment that we're going to hear even tonight is going to play out before us in future days. Ironside puts it this way. He says some of these nations will appear on the scene in the last days, still manifesting their enmity toward the chosen people. And indeed, as we'll see here, the first of the burdens is Babylon. Verse 1, the oracle, the burden concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoth saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Note that, nations gathering together against Babylon. Which, by the way, is what happened. Babylon was conquered by two nations that gathered together to conquer it. Medes and the Persians. He says, Our Lord, the Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and His instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. This is a judgment on Babylon. Now listen for a moment. Babylon is Satan's capital. Babylon is Satan's city. This is his pick. As much as Jerusalem is the city of the Lord, Jerusalem is the city where he said, I will put my name there. It's the apple of my eye, God says. Chosen among all the cities of the world, Jerusalem is mine, says the Lord. So Satan claims Babel. Babylon. It's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible, and we know exactly how Babylon comes to an end. Revelation 14, verse 8 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Revelation 16.19 Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. So we know, in the end, Babylon is going down. 
some have asked me, Rick, do you think Babylon might be America? Do you think Babylon perhaps could be a picture or a metaphor of something else? And while it's interesting to consider that possibility, I think the reality is John never gives us other options in the Revelation. And I believe it is what it is. Wait, you believe Babylon is going to rise or something? Listen up. Babylon was founded by a nefarious and infamous personality, a guy by the name of Nimrod. And our pregnant moms among us, please don't name your children Nimrod. It will not go well for them. Genesis chapter 10, verse 9 says, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, literally in the face of the Lord. The word indicates rebellion. He was a mighty hunter who rebelled against the Lord. Therefore it is said, Genesis 10.9, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar, which is present day Iraq. This is Iraq. Nimrod was a mighty hunter, again, in the face of the Lord. His name, Nimrod, means we will rebel. And that's exactly what he did. Nimrod, it's believed, was the very first person to introduce idolatry into the world. The first man to say, let's worship something other than this Creator God. Let's go a different route, a different direction. He built a famous city around which... Uh, which was around an even more famous tower. The city is Babylon. The tower was called Babel. And you know about the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11 tells the story. The people said, Come, let us build a, a city for ourselves, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What's interesting in that verse is it tells us something about the intent of the Tower of Babel in Babylon. The intention, gang, was not to build up to heaven, but it was to build into heaven. The idea behind it being this ziggurat design was built as a tower of worship and study of astrological signs. The first ziggurat to to, to go up there is the Tower of Babel. The Chaldean name, Babel, means gate of God. The name Babylon itself means heaven's gate. But God renamed it Babel in the Hebrew, which means confusion. For it's there that God confused the languages and dispersed the people of the earth because they were making basically a temple, an idol to themselves. By the way, human religions are always babbling. Human man-made religions are always confusing. Did you know the Quran? One-third of the Quran is unintelligible. If you told me that one-third of the Holy Scriptures was unintelligible, I think I would just close it up and go somewhere else. Human religions are always confusing and babbling, but 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now back in Isaiah 13, the phrase in verse 2, note this, lift up a standard on the bare hill, It's used many times by the prophet, or by all the prophets actually, but a lot by Isaiah, to indicate a banner that is calling a distant army to come attack. Lift up the banner on the hill. It's like flashing a red cape before a bull that is calling it to charge. So the the Lord is, is indicating this, but the charging bull here is not Babylon, 
It's those the Lord calls against them that would cause Babylon to fall very hard. Now, quickly, Bible students, who recalls what happened on the night that Babylon fell? Do you remember what was going on in Babylon on the night that it fell? The hand on the wall. There was a party going on and? The the writing on the wall. And the writing on the wall. One of the coolest stories in the whole Bible. Belshazzar is there having a big party. They call him for all the the, uh, implements of the temple, the Jerusalem temple, the golden cups and vases and dishes. And they bring it all in and they start eating and drinking off of it. And they're just getting drunk and having a a glorious time. and, And the Medes and Persians are outside. They're not worried about it. They're in Babylon, you know, with, with the massive walls. They're saying there's no way they can get in. And all of a sudden, Belshazzar looks over and a hand appears. Just a hand. God is so cool. Just a hand and starts writing on the wall. And the Bible tells you, kid you not, Belshazzar wet himself right there. Just, <laughs> he became incontinent. And this handwriting on the wall, why do I point that out and remind you of it? Look at verse 2. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. The doors of the nobles was an actual name of an actual gate through which you would come into the palace in Babylon. Wave the hand. Well, the hand was waving. The hand was writing on the wall. And the Medes and the Persians, they came and they utterly destroyed the the rule and reign of Babylon that night. Read down further. Verse 17. Skip down there. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. Now, when Isaiah said this, the Medes were a non-people. Scattered, there was there was no real national organization to them. And there, there were people, but there wasn't much to them, you know. I will stir up the Medes against them. By the way, Cyrus was of Median descent, though he was a Persian king, which is interesting. And Cyrus later will be named by name by Isaiah, 150 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah is going to name him as the tool that God uses to take out Babylon. It's phenomenal. But he says here, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold. Why? They're not going to destroy Babylon for the riches. They're just going to destroy it out of bitterness and anger for the captivity and the the harsh rule that Babylon inflicted on them. They're not concerned about money. They just want to take out Babylon. Kind of like the Newt Gingrich. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Um, Just want to... I'm sorry, sometimes it just kind of pops out and I don't, can't get it back. You know, Words are coming out. Alright, so they go after Babylon, not for any other value other than just to take it down. Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb. This will be brutal. Nor will their eye pity children, or literally sons. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when Sodom or God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story. It will never be inhabited nor lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will also live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Basically saying it's going to be a wasteland. Her fateful time will also will, will soon come and her days will not be prolonged. Wiped out this glorious city. 
In the 19th century, the ruins of Babylon were discovered. Uncovered, excavated. In a city there in Iraq, some of our service people would know by name Mosul. Babylon was discovered there in Mosul. And they found with the excavations that it was exactly as the scripture indicated. It was just wasted, just wiped out. And no one since the destruction of Babylon, 539 B.C., since the destruction all the way up till present day, no one really had lived there. It's just a desert waste. But when they excavated it, and when they discovered it, a process began to restore it. Before his demise, it was one of the top things on Saddam Hussein's list to restore Babylon. There's a man in, uh, in Iraq today, and I forget his name, I'll have to look it up. But he has committed over a billion dollars to the restoration of Babylon. The Ishtar Gate leading into Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's day is already done. It's built. The palace of Nebuchadnezzar has already been reconstructed. You know what else they have there? They have a little mock version of the Tower of Babel, which they intend to rebuild. Babylon is being restored. Babylon is now surrounded there in Mosul by suburbs. And there are people living in and around this region. Wait a minute, the Bible says they wouldn't ever again. But they are. Is the Bible wrong? No. (laughs) The first destruction was but a picture of the final destruction to come. For though Babylon is currently under construction... It's entirely likely that a restored Babylon will be the center of Antichrist government on the earth. And it makes absolute sense as much as Jerusalem is the Lord's capital city, Babylon the capital city of Satan, and that will be the place, I believe, actual Babylon in Iraq, in Mosul, actual Babylon will become the centerpiece, the focus of Antichrist's kingdom. That's where he will set his government. And that is the Babylon that the book of Revelation that John describes will fall. Actual, literal Babylon. What makes you say all of that? Well, because the prophecy in chapter 13 is much bigger than what happened in 539 B.C. 539 B.C., when they took out Babylon, it was over like that. They flooded in, they cut off the waterways, they went in underneath the channels, came up into the city, and they flooded into Belshazzar's palace before anyone even knew that the Medes and Persians were in the city. It was, it was a non-battle, it was over so quickly. And the differences between what happened historically and what's described in Isaiah 13 are, are pretty interesting. Wail, verse 6, for the day of the Lord is near. Well, wait a minute, the day of the Lord? What's that? It's the tribulation. The Bible doesn't throw around the phrase the day of the Lord lightly. The day of the Lord is the tribulation and it is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty or Kishad Mishadai. Destruction from the Almighty. This is God's hand destroying. Therefore all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor and they will look at one another in astonishment. <laughs> I'd be looking at you guys astonished if you were arriving like a woman in labor. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And He will exterminate its sinners from it. Now this is more than the fall of Babylon, gang. 
For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will go dark or will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. So there's stuff going on in the heavenlies. He says, thus I will punish uh, tiny Babylon for its evil. And... That's not what it says, is it? Thus I will punish the world for its evil. This is talking about the tribulation. And the wicked for their iniquity. I also will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man, the word there, Enosh, Enosh, which means the common man. I will make common man scarcer than pure gold. And mankind, or the word is Adam, meaning mortals, I will make them scarcer than the gold of Ophir. What's he talking about? He's saying very priceless, difficult to find gold will be less rare than mankind will be in that day. What do you mean, Father? I mean I'm wiping out sin from the face of the earth. And those who were not caught up in the rapture and those who did not give their lives as tribulation saints, refusing to take the mark of the beast Antichrist, those who stood for me and died for it, all gone, and now I'm just dealing with common man, mortal man on planet earth, and the vast majority will be wiped out. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. And it will be, and it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each one flee to his own land as if running back to your former nation is going to help. Anyone who is found to, will be thrust through, picture a sword going through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword, their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, their women ravished. What God does in prophecy, and, and we recognize this, is He flows sometimes back and forth a bit be, between the immediate, I'm going to take out Babylon, and then He starts to go into the larger thing that Babylon is just a little picture of. I'm going to show you something right now in Babylon and taking it out. It's just a picture for what's happening. And then he goes into the broad and he shows the bigger spiritual picture and what's going to happen in the very end. And it's shocking and horrifying. And then he'll bring it right back down to Babylon again. And God does that a lot in Bible prophecy. Starts with a specific, goes broad to the end times, and then brings it back down to the specific. He's going to do it in chapter 14 as well, by the way. All of this, to sum it up, speaks of an unimaginable time of terror and devastation that is coming upon the whole world. The tribulation. May we have a burden for this world. We can talk with joy about being in the end times and that Jesus may call us home any day. May we have a burden that accompanies that joy. A joy to go and a burden to see people saved before this takes place. Because it will take place just as the Lord describes. If you look at chapter 14, it says, When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord. As male servants, the female servants, And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service 
in which you have been enslaved, he's talking to Israel, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. We're going to stop there for tonight. But I want to leave you with a heads up. The king of Babylon, taunted in chapter 14, is not just the human agent ruling there in Babylon. It's not just Antichrist who will rule, I believe, there out of Babylon in the last days. The king of Babylon in the taunt of chapter 14, as it turns out, is none other than Satan. And in chapter 14 of the book of Isaiah, we will get one of the first, one of two primary prehistorical accounts of Satan himself, of his fall from grace. We see that in chapter 14. The serpent of old, Revelation 12, 9 calls him, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. But I'll leave you with this glorious thought that just like the capital city of Babylon, the devil will fall. And he will fall hard in the presence of the King of Kings, who is for us Elani, Yeshua, God, my salvation. And in that day, Jesus Christ will be the last King standing. Amen? Amen. God, we praise You for these things, Lord, these things that are at the same time exciting, but also, Father, very uh, burdensome. And I do ask, Lord, for both. And I... Your Spirit can achieve this in us. That we would have the balance of wonderful joy and expectation and the burden of evangelization in this world. And I pray, Father, that will be a mark on this fellowship. A fellowship who absolutely cannot wait for You to come and yet at the same time is passionate for the lost. Make that our rally cry, Lord Jesus, before You come. And come quickly in Jesus' name. Amen.